COVID tested the limits and exposed the fatal flaws in Canada's centrally planned socialized healthcare system. It failed to deliver results to Canadians, and it is bankrupting our country. Let's talk about ways to improve the system. I'm Candace Malcolm, and this is The Candace Malcolm Show. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in. Now, I know that there is a huge rally going on in Ottawa, that the protests have moved to provincial capitals all over the world, and it is really exciting. We're going to continue to provide wall-to-wall coverage of that over at TNC. But I wanted to focus in on something else that has become so apparent and so problematic during the course of the pandemic, and that is the failure of our healthcare system. We have seen it in so many regards, manifest in so many ways. It is connected to the trucker protests because the mandates are by and large caused because of the shortages in our healthcare system. If we had a robust, um, thorough system that allowed for a, a lot more capacity for people to go into ICUs when necessary, we wouldn't have to lock down. We wouldn't have all of these lockdowns that have destroyed our society over the last two years. Just look at a place like Florida that has huge ICU capacity and they haven't had to have the same kind of lockdown. So our healthcare system is really at the center of this. And it is so important for us to talk about these issues, address them. And for people who oppose the liberal government and want to have a better country, a better Canada, it's up to us to come up with ideas and solutions as to how we can improve the system to benefit all Canadians. So to do that today, I'm really pleased to be joined by my friend, Dr. Sean Watt. Sean is a rural family doctor based in Mount Albert, Ontario. He's the author of When Politics Comes Before Patients, Why and How Canadian Medical Care is Failing. And he, he's a Monk Senior Fellow over at the McDonald Laurier Institute. He's spent the last 20 years serving as various leadership roles on a number of boards, and he's the past president of the Ontario Medical Association Show. Sean, welcome to True North. Welcome to the Candace Malcolm Show. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So you recently wrote this great column over in the National Post. The column was titled, Canada's More With Less Approach to Healthcare Has Failed Us. So why don't you give us a little overview? What do you mean by that, the more with less approach? Yeah, so thank you. The the gist of it is that within healthcare itself, so I served a number of years as a hospital administrator, and every administrator needs to know what you have to do to get ahead. What do you have to do to make the hospital board happy with you? What do you have to do to make the Ministry of Health happy with you? And one of the guaranteed paths to success is to try to provide care to more patients, better care to more patients, improve your level of service without spending more money. So that's always the key. How can we not increase hospital budgets and yet stretch out what we're doing more and more? And so we get thinner and thinner in a, in a previous book, I talked about our lack of resilience that gets baked into the system. But the paradox of it is that despite our fact of, our, despite the fact that we're trying so desperately to provide more care without spending less, sort of this more with less approach, we actually end up spending more. So we, we cut beds, we decrease services, and so we end up with less care for a higher price tag. So we end up with less for more, despite trying to do more with less. Well, so it's interesting. I'll just pull a line from your column because you you have this information really detailed out. So you said that this is talking about the province of Ontario. So in 1990, Ontario had 33,000 acute care hospital beds, or that's the equivalent of 3.2 per thousand of the population, and healthcare spending represented 8.3% of the province's GDP. Fast forward to 2017, so 27 years later, Ontario had fallen to 
18,500 beds, down from 33,400, down to 18,500. That's nearly a 50, that's, that's almost cut in half. Uh, that equates to 1.3 beds per thousand population because the population is growing at the same time. Meanwhile, healthcare spending rose to 11.3% of the GDP. How is that possible, Sean, that we are getting, we're spending twice as much and basically getting half as much? So I, I always try to take the positive spin on it. And part of the story here is that perhaps we had too many beds in 1990, right? The, the, the beds that we had in 1990 were a reflection of what happened in the 1970s and before that, when we had a hospital building boom all across Canada. And we could unpack why that happened, but we'll leave it to say we had a ton of beds in the 70s. We didn't really build a ton more in the 80s. But then by the time the crunch hit in the 1990s, that's when people said, whoa, we, you know, we're running out of money. And we got into the social contract years of the decade in, in the 1990s. And so governments had to A, save money, but B, try to shift services out of the hospital. So there's a big, big movement to a lot of outpatient care, outpatient therapy. Uh, used to, you know, have a baby and get admitted for two weeks. And, and then we had trouble with people getting blood clots in their legs because they were in hospital for so long. And so that created its own problems. And so it was a good thing to start getting people moving quicker, getting them out of the hospital, doing more outpatient care. However, that same vision of trying to um, stretch the dollar, do more with less, really was perhaps only a, a wise plan for the first few years. Okay, maybe it was wise to cut beds, but continually cutting beds, closing hospitals, and thinking that that was the secret sauce that's going to allow us to continue on uh, forever, it, that's not a vision for growth. And so whether it was just, um, uh, you know, it was, uh, I was going to say osmosis, that's not the right word, whether it was just um, um, inertia, inertia, that's the word I'm looking for. So you grab onto something and you just keep doing it over and over and you expect different results. And unfortunately that doesn't happen. And so what happens is the wait times grow and grow and grow. We end up spending more and more of our GDP and, and uh, people are getting less service overall. Well, it's interesting to hear you say that perhaps the 3.2 per thousand population was too much and that we were, you know, we'd gone through this boom and we didn't quite need it. And yet you point out in your piece that the OECD average is 4.8 beds. So so we're just wildly underprepared in Canada in general pre-COVID. And, 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 and I think that COVID just even showed that even more, how underprepared our system was. To me, Sean, this provides and creates a perfect opportunity. And I wish that people in conservatively led provinces like Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and Ontario were more prepared to step in at this point and say, look, this is an emergency. Our ICU capacity is so small. There was an investigative report by my colleague Anthony Fury over in the Toronto Sun talking about how even, even with the small ICU capacity, the capacity is even less because they don't have the nursing staff and the physician staff to, to actually man those beds. And so, so, so that is a major problem, not so much just the pure capacity, but, you know, we're in a situation in Ontario where a couple hundred people in the ICU and the entire province goes into lockdown. So, so with this huge problem comes an opportunity. And I think that conservatives need to take advantage of it by proposing changes and telling Canadians, look, we want you to have universal coverage. What you have right now isn't universal. When you have to go to the hospital and wait for hours and hours, or if you need a surgery and you have to wait months and months and months, that's not, that's not universal. That's, that's you being put on hold. So, so, so what we can do, what can we do? You spend a lot of time thinking about this. What can be done? 
Yeah, so that's a huge question. And so many people ask me. Uh, so first of all, we're, there's no shortage of ideas. There are, uh, you know, at least we could talk about even the Romano report, which was very, very pro-Medicare, just pour more money in. But we can talk about the Mazinkowski report or the Kirby Commission or even the Nela report. Uh, he was the chair of the last most recent uh, committee looking at this. Look at, look at the report out of Quebec. I think it was uh, the Claude report. Um, so lots of good ideas out there. We could talk about changing funding mechanism, having mechanisms, having patient co-pay, having in different insurance approaches. We could talk about public-private partnerships. We could talk about um, having tests done at home, having care in the community. But all of these things are tactics. What we need is an overall strategy. So even, you know, as supportive as I am of the Canby surgery case, where they're really trying to say that not allowing any kind of private funding is unconstitutional, I'm supportive of that. My worry, however, is that if we only focus on funding and leave all the other important decisions to the state or the medical profession or the unions, we still won't make a major change. It would be like uh, me going to the grocery store and, and telling my daughter, okay, here's 20 bucks, run in, we need 1% milk, two bags of it. It's gotta be the, this particular brand and at this particular store that we're at, at this particular time of a day, I've made all the important decisions. And she isn't, you know, maybe she doesn't have enough money in her pocket. So she uses a, a, a visa or whatever. The payment mechanism itself is only one feature of a much larger discussion. And part of the problem is, and I'm stealing a, a term, I forget the author I got it from, but he talks about the iron triangle in corporatism. So this is back in the 1980s and Margaret Thatcher had to break this iron triangle. And it's a term that comes from corporatism. It talks about the government and the corporations and unions or big labor. And we have a similar iron triangle in Canada of the, the government, the medical professions, so the regulatory colleges and the educational colleges and the medical associations, so doctors, the state, and the unions. And each of those entities have veto power over any substantive change. So even if we changed funding, you still have these three self-interested parties that aren't going to allow change to happen. So I think that's where we need to start focusing our attention. And we need to say, is it right to have a concentration of power in the regu regulatory colleges? So they make the laws, enforce the laws, oversee the laws, punish the lawbreakers if it's a doctor, rehabilitate the lawbreakers. I mean, you would never have that in a Western approach to a free parliamentary democracy. You separate those powers. That's just one example. We could talk about the close to 100% unionization rate in Ontario hospitals. Does that make sense when the broader public sector is around in the mid 70s, you go to the private sector, you're down into the 30% range for unionization rates. And they're even below 20% if you look at the American general overall unionization rate. So there are a number of different ways we could look at breaking that iron triangle. But uh, you're asking me about what I'm going to put into the next book, and it's actually very difficult. There are so many ideas, but how do you package it together? And this is what I'm kind of landing on is this concept of the state doctors and big labor and how we're just locked and no one's going to let a change happen. Well, that, that would sort of let, lend an idea as to why there hasn't been 
more sweeping changes in provinces led by conservative governments because perhaps they don't even have control like they don't have the control or the power to to defeat those other two bodies the unions and the regulators and we know i, I mean i've looked into the issue with sort of interprovincial migration or or even immigrants coming to canada and having their credentials not match and having a lot of problems trying to break into the labor force because these um jobs are so guarded by by the regulators that you talk about uh, i wanted to pull one other uh quote out of your column because i thought it was uh, so uh, relevant to what we've just lived through so you mentioned that there's a myopia and narrow-mindedness that bedeviled efforts to reform um, to healthcare reform and we've seen this happen politically so even in the last election 2021 erno tool sort of started talking about in a, in a very sort of mild and reasonable way uh, this is a conservative leader, former conservative leader now but the leader of the party at the time uh, just having a um, more sort of partnerships between the private sector and the public sector and just leading to more healthcare spaces and, and a more dynamic healthcare system. And what did we see? The liberals followed by their supporters in the legacy media sort of drum it out as Aaron wants to privatize healthcare, Aaron wants to Americanize our healthcare, all of the exact same critiques that we've been seeing for 20 years in Canadian politics. They just sort of create such a shallow, dumbed down attack. That's politics. And it seems to work. Canadians seem to be very attached to the concept of our healthcare system, even though perhaps when they go to interact with it themselves, they have negative experiences. Uh, it's not all as cracked up to be, but the, the, the liberals have done a tremendous job and then and, and the NDP as well, but of, of sort of tying our healthcare system with our national identity, that, 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 that it, it is like the, one of the biggest sources of pride when you see those polls about like, what do Canadians care about? They, they feel really protective over their system, regardless of how much it fails, how poorly it ranks in terms of like comparing it to the OECD. I'm not talking about comparing it to our American neighbors. I'm talking about comparing it to the UK, France, Switzerland, Sweden, Norway, all these other countries that we should be, Australia, that we should be looking to. And and, and yet we have this like very rigid idea. So sort of, I know you think about this a lot from a political perspective, how do, you, how do you think you convince Canadians that we need to have this change, we need to break up this these powers, and it, it would be better for everybody if there was just more healthcare opportunities, be it public or private or, or whatever? So great, great question. Uh, there are two issues. Number one is the negative and the risk of talking about the negative. So as soon as we criticize Medicare, to your point, it feels people feel like we're criticizing them, we're criticizing home, we're criticizing motherhood and apple pie. Uh, Jim Carrey was on the uh, Bill, Maher, Bill Maher's show. Um, and it ran off a, a major rant. This is about 2018. He said, listen, I'm from Canada, okay? And we have socialized medicine. I'm here to tell you what you hear on these talk shows. And he went on, gave a bunch of swear words and said why, why the Canadian system is just awesome. I never have to wait. I always get what I want. What I want. My mom lives in Vancouver and on and on and on. So that kind of approach of coming to the defense of motherhood and apple pie is a bit like if the Titanic is sinking and you happen to be one of the lucky ones who got into one of the few rowboats. So you're safe and you're snuggled under your blanket when you're eating snacks and someone says, Hey, there's someone else drowning in the water. And you say, stop that. Look, we're nice and warm. We're safe. How dare you criticize the work of these hardworking sailors to, you know, it just doesn't make sense. So we have to shift the narrative to say, listen, we're not criticizing everything. We're just saying that people are really suffering and actually dying. 
So that's the negative side. And how do we respond to the negative? But I think it has to go beyond that. We have to talk about the positive. What kind of vision can we offer people? And, and this is a challenge. Uh, part of it, you know, we could create this gigantic vision and no one would listen to you because it would take too long to tell them. Or we can just get really nitty gritty and say, what do you want? You want great care when you need it close to home without having to travel. You want to be able to change docs if you and your doc really butt heads. We could look at the Canada Health Act. I mean, everybody loves comprehensive care, universal care, portable care. We could unpack those three principles and say, yeah, we love those three principles. But the first principle, publicly administered, okay, wait a second, why do we have to be so rigid on that? We all love comprehensiveness and universality and portability, even though you don't have portability to Quebec because it doesn't really reciprocate, but we'll leave that to the side. But why, why do we have to be so rigid on publicly administered? And then the final uh, part of the Canada Health Act is accessibility. Why are we so rigid on saying, okay, no hospital user fees, but yet hospitals charge outrageous parking rates and they charge overpriced for coffee in the hospital and overpriced at their gift shops. So they're still doing a pseudo hospital user fee, at least with the parking fees, uh, but yet that's okay. So we need to sort of take the, 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 the heat down in the room, stop letting people say, we just want an American system. There are many other countries in the world. Stop talking about the whole business and profit thing. Every single person working in healthcare, at least as far as I know, gets an income. Everybody profits from the work they do. You don't see a bunch of people going around uh, taking vows of poverty and working for free as a nurse or a doctor or anything. So we need to start unpacking that and really make sense of it. If it wasn't for businesses, this is a, a Taylor, he's a journalist in the UK. He said, if it wasn't for businesses, all we would have is doctors and nurses standing in a field in their underwear. So because of businesses, we have hospital beds and, and, and drugs and, and uh, procedure, procedural instruments, and we have buildings and light. And so there are a bunch of ways where we could really unpack this, but it needs to be in little snippets that people want to consume when they're thinking about politics. Well, that's so helpful, Sean. And I'm, I'm really excited. I didn't know you had a new book coming out. So, so we'll have to keep an eye on that and have you back on the program uh, when that book comes out. I, I feel like this is just the start of a conversation. I would love to have you on again so we can t jump into other issues and, and, and go, go into more depth. But I really appreciate you being out there having these conversations and getting the ball rolling and getting people thinking about it. I think it's so important for the country. So really appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining the show today. My pleasure. Thank you. Great. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Candace Malcolm, and this is The Candace Malcolm Show.